to talk today about science in the Bible. Yeah, in church history. And this is pretty cool. The genesis for this, in part, concerns my visit on Monday to Wheaton. I was asked to go to Wheaton to give a, a lecture Monday night on the gospel in the public forum. I was asked to give a lecture as a lawyer and an author and a Christian on Christianity and trial. I said, I'd, I'd love to do it. It was booked a number of months ago, and I agreed to do it. I got an email from Dr. Jerry Root. Now, Dr. Root is a, just a superb gentleman and, and Christian believer. He's been there for, for a long, long time. Dr. Root asked me, would I teach his 11 o'clock class, no, 11.30 class, on evangelism and modern culture. Now, here's what the class is about. The class is about how to share your faith in today's society, which for these college kids are the, the college men and women at the campus, right? So it's how to share your faith. So I was try- I got there 30 minutes early. I wanted to know a little bit more about the class. I said, tell me about it. He said, well, it's an elective course. It's not mandatory. So the only people in there are the people who are interested in this. I said, that's interesting. How many students? I'm figuring 10, 15? No, 42. 42. And then Dr. Root says to me, he says, before we go in there, For the last 30 plus years, or however long he's been teaching, 30, 40 years, he says, before I teach any class, I pray for each of my students by name. So would you join me in praying for these students? And so we sat there, and it wasn't just a through the the roll. I mean, he's pausing when he knows a specific need of a student and praying for it. It was an amazing time. And we go from there into the class, and in the class, I had taken... Some paper, 21 sheets of paper, used a nice little cutter, and I'd cut them in half, and I passed them out to the students. And I said, now here's the deal. Each one of you has the uniqueness of me not knowing you from Adam. Oh, I sort of know your names because I prayed for you with Dr. Root, but I don't know you. And I won't recognize your handwriting. So I want you with complete anonymity to answer the following question. Write out your answer. Fold the paper over. I'll collect them. I'll mix them up as I collect them. So I'll just have no clue who wrote what. Here's the question. What is your greatest challenge? To faith. What is it? You're you're in a class about sharing your faith, but what is your personal challenge? What is it that, that you have deep inside your soul that that you question most, that you really want to know? Where is that challenge for you, that greatest challenge? And they pass them in. And I started opening them one by one, and said, we're just going to talk about it. I may not have the answer, but I'll give you my thoughts on it. And it was amazing to me how many of them were, if we go to the Elmo, things like this. Seeming mismatches, 
between what happens in life science and the Bible is the Bible actually true? My greatest challenge to faith is questioning whether the Bible is really inspired by God when certain books were chosen to be in the Bible. How do we know these were words from God rather than really good, solid advice from the author? Say, just good advice from Paul the Apostle. There's a whole group of answers or questions that all came in together like that. There was another group that was just as uh, numerous. The other group is typified by this one. If God is all-powerful, then he would be able to change the laws of the universe so that no one has to suffer and still have us love him freely. If he allows this suffering, then he's either not all-powerful or he's not all-loving, one or the other. Another one. Why does God allow babies to be born in slum-like poverty conditions? I loved those questions. I read every one of them. Not all of them in class didn't have time, but I read every one of them. And I, ch- I wrote my email address down and said, if, you, if I can't get to your question in class and it really is bothering you, please email me. Because I want to I deal with these questions. I love looking at questions and trying to assess this stuff. I love being able to talk bluntly to those students. I mean, some of these questions are very nice in the brain, but they actually have really good answers. And the answers are rooted in Scripture. There really is a coherent line of science and the Bible that crosses even some of the... I heard the question, why does God allow uh, babies to be born in poverty conditions in the slums? I said, that's an easy one. That's real easy. Can we go back to the Elmo? I went to the board and I said, it goes like this. Oops. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Let me find where I am. Am I? Okay, there I am. I said, that is a sperm. (laughs) That is an ova. An egg. If the sperm takes its chromosome material into the egg, you have a cell that can divide and divide and divide, and nine months later is a crying baby. That's a baby. I said, now here's the magic. If this happens to parents who live in the slum, there's a baby born in the slum. And why does God allow that to happen? 
Because he set up a world where when the sperm enters the egg, you have a baby. And God is not the eternal contraceptive that exists if someone's in the slum. They're allowed to have children too. Now, that's not hard. You can figure that one out. But it traces back to an idea that I want to deal with today if we go back. And that is this question. If what is your biggest personal challenge to having faith in God is science and the Bible, then I want you to know that this is not a new problem. This is a problem that's been around for a long, long time. Now, some of you are saying, yes, I know it's been around for a long time because I remember something about Galileo. Galileo, who lived in the 16th and 17th century, the father of astronomy, who discovered uh, 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 so many things in the sky. He weighed in heavy on the big Copernicus fight, the big fight of whether or not geocentrism was true. Geo means earth from the Greek word geis, which means earth. The earth is the center and everything rotates around the earth. Whether that was true or whether heliocentrism was true. Helios is the sun. Whether the sun is the center in our solar system at least. And things rotate around the sun. Big debate. Galileo writes a big missive on it. In the missive he takes a few liberties. Pope Urban VIII decides he's gone too far. Puts him under house arrest. And uh, basically uh, burns all of his materials and says he's a bad dude. Now, we might start looking at this and thinking, that silly Pope Urban VIII. Why did he do that? Well, he said because of the Bible. The Bible's replete with passages like Ecclesiastes 1.5. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hustles back to where it's going to rise again. Which sure sounds like the earth is stationary and the sun's doing the moving. And so the, 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 the church... Now, this is not a struggle against pagan scientists and Bible-believing churchmen. Galileo Galilei was a faithful Bible-believing churchman scientist. He just happened to understand Scripture in a different way than Pope Urban and realized that Ecclesiastes was not writing a dissertation on geocentrism or heliocentrism, but was explaining to people in the language that they see and the language that they know and the concepts that they had, the sun rises. We still use that expression today. It's not a sign that we're idiots. You can go on the web and you can say, what time is sunset today? And that doesn't make you geocentrist. That doesn't mean you've eschewed science. It just means that's the way we speak, and visually that's what we see. 
So this dispute goes back to Galileo, but I want to tell you the dispute actually goes back even further. And I think the dispute is a marvelous thing that I really want to underscore today because I believe that truth is God's truth. Whether you find it in science, yes, that's worth applauding. Truth is God's truth. Whether you find it in science, whether you find it in medicine, whether you find it in relationships, whether you find it in whatever arena you want, truth is God's truth. And it is extremely useful for us to know that and to think about that. And when we learn truth, now by the way, I don't want to offend anybody here, but I'm not one of these guys who automatically believes everything that the majority of scientists believe is true is actually true. I think science is not always totally right and has learning to do. We don't have all of the answers yet. There are some areas where we're still trying to learn. So many studies to be statistically significant, most studies... If you don't follow this, that's okay. But if you're a scientist, you'll follow it. Most studies are to a 95% confidence interval. That still means there's a 1 out of a 20 chance that it might be a fluke. Science is not always definite on everything. But within the framework of that, I feel pretty secure saying that the earth rotates around the sun. There are some pretty good scientific things that I think are pretty well established that aren't really much in fuss or dispute. And when we find truth, and I'll go a step further and say, when we find truth in the scientific world, I believe it helps inform our understanding of God. I think it's an aid to faith, not a detraction. I think it's an, and when we talk about our understanding of God, there's a big word for that. It's called theology. Discussing God, studying God thinking about God. I think truth not only helps inform our understanding of God, but I think it helps inform our understanding of His Word. I think we better understand Scripture when we can find independent truth that is reliable truth and read it in conjunction with Scripture. It helps inform us as we understand the Bible. Now, within the framework of that, I want to talk to you about the early church struggle on this issue. The early church struggle. Now, I'm not in Galileo's day. That's mid to late church. I'm talking early church. I want to go back to 200 A.D. And to do that, I need to tell you some background information to make sure we're all on the same page. And then I really want to look at two fellas, Clement of Alexandria, which is a city in Egypt, and Tertullian from Carthage, which is modern Tunisia, on the coast of Africa, but further west than Egypt. So that's what we're going to do. Those are the three things we're going to look at. Let's start with the background. The earliest church was a Jewish group. That should not be hard to understand. I had a friend who um, had never read the Bible before, 
didn't even know where to get one. Had to ask me where to buy a Bible. Said he wanted to read it. I said, why don't you start reading with the Gospel of John? Don't start at Genesis 1. You won't make it through Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. You'll never see Jesus. So, so start. I'm just being honest here, okay? That's what I told him. I said, start with the Gospel of John and read it through. He called me that same day, at the end of the day, and said, all right, I read the Gospel of John. I said, what'd you think? He said, those Jews were bad people. I said, wait, wait, wait. You can't say that. I said, Jesus was a Jew. He said, oh, yeah, I didn't think of it that way. I said, Peter was a Jew. All of the apostles were Jews. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I guess so. I said, and the Romans helped put him up on the cross. Well, yeah, they were bad dudes too. He says, I guess there's bad in every group. I said, okay, I feel better about that saying. Feel better. But the earliest church was a Jewish group. Leonardo da Vinci understood that. He painted them all at dinner. Everybody in that painting is Jewish. So the church gets, don't get me wrong, Jesus certainly said to take the gospel to all nations. And he didn't mean simply the Jews in those nations. Because as Matthew writes it, he uses the Greek word ethnos. We get ethnic from it. It meant the Gentiles, the pagan people. So Jesus is telling his Jewish apostles to go into all the world and to take the gospel to everybody. But it was a Jewish institution at first that was intended for the world. And if you go back and you read the book of Acts, you read that it was a Jewish set of apostles who first converted a bunch of Jews that then dispersed to the world. And our first Gentile conversion of note is, the, is, is uh, Cornelius. But even there, before that takes place, God has to come to Peter in a vision to give Peter peace about it. Then Paul and Barnabas go out and they start missionizing. And as they do their mission work, they're bringing Gentiles to faith as well. But it's not until Acts chapter 15 that the church begins to debate internally. This issue of, okay, we're letting Gentiles in the church. But we have a debate over whether or not first the Gentiles have to become Jewish. Because the church was a Jewish institution. Now, here's the way I look at it. And you've got to watch this PowerPoint slide carefully. I worked hard on it. (laughs) Pouring into the church... was Judaism. That's pretty good, wasn't it? All right, we're going to do that again. Okay. (laughs) Pouring into the church was Judaism. And by that, we've got to include the fact that the church leadership and the intelligentsia, the smart ones who were figuring out doctrine and dogma, who were writing and teaching, 
They're the Jewish intelligentsia. I mean, Paul's the missionary to the Gentiles, but Paul's a trained rabbi at the feet of Gamaliel, one of the best first century rabbis Judaism knows. Modern Jews still quote Gamaliel. So you've got Jewish intelligentsia leading and teaching the church. But then a tragedy happens. The Jewish nation people rebel against Rome. Rome brings in their army and they destroy the temple 68 to 70 AD. Now what happened here, some scholars disagree on exactly, but early church history records, and a good set of scholars agree with it, and it's what makes sense to me, that the early Christians, which everybody basically agrees were pacifists, the early Christians would not fight with their Jewish brethren in the rebellion. But the church left, having the prophetic words of Jesus, they thought that this was time to leave. And so you have Jewish Christians who leave Jerusalem when the Romans come in and slam the rebellion, burn the temple, burn the scrolls, destroy everything. Now, with the temple destroyed, Judaism and and a whole bunch of people killed takes a whole uh, uh, significant turn. We enter a period, we leave what's called Second Temple Judaism and we enter into what's called Rabbinic Judaism where the rabbis got together and said, we've got to figure out how our faith continues to practice. We no longer have the priests We no longer have sacrifices. We no longer have the temple. We don't have those core drivers behind our faith. What are we going to do? And benedictions, the Jewish prayers are rewritten. And as they're rewritten, they're written in a way that basically says, if you are a Christian Jew, you're going to hell. Because there's a great deal of animosity toward the Christian Jews who didn't stay and fight. And now Judaism is, or Christianity is no longer a sect of Judaism as much. You have lost that Jewish infusion. And as you've lost that Jewish infusion and it starts to evaporate and disappear, the new church leadership and intelligentsia is Greek. And there is a massive change in the way the church sees things and in the way the church teaches. Let me explain. Irenaeus is someone we studied earlier. He wrote against the Gnostic heresies. Irenaeus was a bishop of Lyon in France. Let's hear it from the French missionaries. Irenaeus was was a... Originally, France was pumping out the missionaries. We've just got to get them back to that point. Uh, uh, Irenaeus of Lyon was writing against the, the heresies of his day, the Gnostic heresy. But in the process, 
He wrote of his theology and he approached things as a Greek thinker. Irenaeus was not Jewish. And he thought like a Greek. And so Irenaeus is sitting there as a Greek trying to figure some things out. And he has what's a theology of salvation called recapitulation. Recapitulation. You don't need to know that word, but it's really kind of a fun one to say. And there is a rebirth of this in theological talk in the last couple of decades. So if you hear someone say, you know, uh, I've been following the theology of recapitulation, you can just nod and say, yes, we were discussing that Sunday morning in life group. (laughs) Goes back to Irenaeus in the second century. He was Bishop of Lyon. But I digress. Now, you can say that if you can remember that much, okay? If you can remember more, you get bonus points. Here's what recapitulation is about. Irenaeus was not simply concerned with how does God save our soul. Irenaeus' concern was also that our body is fallen and God has to save our body. He's got to save the material us. How can he do that? God's not material. How's he going to save the material us? The body. Ah, that's why Jesus, Irenaeus said, had to become man. So that he not only saved your soul, he saved your body. Because he came and lived that perfect life and died redeeming your soul, redeeming your body. Okay, so that's Greek thought. That's not Jewish thought. Jewish thought didn't really separate out your soul and your body like that. But anyway, that's what you've got. So now let's get back to our dispute. Here's the debate. That's a modern view of of the the Mediterranean world, the Roman world. Um, Here is Alexandria. One of the largest cities in the Roman Empire, the largest library, a seat of Greek culture and Greek thought. We've talked about it a bunch, but just as a reminder, it's named after Alexander the Great, its founder. And he took that Greek idea and over the centuries after his death, it flourished, had the largest library in the world. It was a a, a seat of a great source of Jewish practice and Christian practice. It had a seminary, a catechetical school. And so it it was it was it was pumping out the scholars and and it was a great learning seat in so many different ways. Now if you go up the coast, there's Carthage. Carthage was a North African town as well. It was very much at this point a Roman town. In fact, Tertullian, who we'll be talking about, is the first significant Christian writer to write in Latin instead of Greek. And it was a Roman, the Carthaginians had had the big fights with Rome. And you can see where they are here, why they would war over each other and war over Sicily. And uh, Hannibal and his Alps, uh, and uh, Hannibal and his elephants crossing the Alps, Carthage. So those are back in the big fights. But by this point in history, Carthage is a Roman town. And so these are the two places where we're going to have this discussion. 
the first is Clement of Alexandria. Now, Clement, an interesting fella. He's, we don't know a lot about his personal history, but we've pieced it together from his writings. Looks like he was born in Athens. His parents are pagans. He's not born into a Jewish home. Clement receives a first-class education in all matters Greek in Athens. He learns the philosophies of his day, and he tries a bunch of them out. He goes over to this one and says, I think I'm going to see if maybe the Epicureans have cornered the market on truth. And he looks for the Epicureans. Nah, didn't like it. I'm going to go over here and see if the Stoics have got truth. Nah, doesn't buy it. I'm going to go over here. I'm going to go over here. He goes through a series of teachers and instructors, does not find truth until he goes to Alexandria. And at about the age of 30 is introduced to Jesus. And he says, I found truth. This works. This makes sense. This is the most believable, the most rational explanation of why the world is the way it is and why I am the way I am. And he embraced it and carried it till the day he died. He became head of the catechetical school. He, um, it's really interesting. I mean, this guy is extremely well read. And, and as he was writing, I was reading some of his stuff, uh, obviously, <laughs> getting ready for the lesson and writing the lesson. Um, it's so fascinating to me to see some of the things that he wrote about. Uh, he wrote and believed in science in his day. Now, we got to time out for a moment because we don't always, we, we live in a different age, but we need to go back in time, okay? So if we can go to the Elmo, here we are back in time. Let me. Okay, so philosophy, philosophy, well, there we go, philosophy, philosophy. Philo means friend in Greek. Sophie doesn't really mean anything, but it comes from the word sophos, which means uh, uh, wisdom. So philosophy truly meant, in its original sense, someone who's friends of thinking, who's friends of, of smart. So when we think about philosophy today, a lot of us think, well, I, I, don't, I don't study philosophy. Philosophy is too... Nah, that's wrong. How many of you took philosophy in high school? Raise your hand. Everybody raise your hand. Everybody in here, raise your hand. You just didn't know it. Aristotle was a biologist. Biology was philosophy in the Greek world. 
Aristotle wrote a book entitled Physics. Physics was philosophy in the real. In fact, it's not until after Newton in the Renaissance, post-Renaissance, that physics takes the name physics. Before that, it's called natural philosophy. Pythagoras was a philosopher. Democritus was a philosopher who said that the basic substance of everything is atoms. And he started a school of the atomists. If you've taken chemistry, you've taken ancient Greek philosophy. Because that's what it comes from. Logic departments didn't veer off and go into mathematics until about a hundred and some odd years ago. They, logic was contained in the philosophy department. Because philosophy wasn't always just this ooey-gooey thought. Philosophy was science. So when you get someone like Clement of Alexandria, he comes in and he sees in philosophy science. Now, a bunch of it he thought was bunk. He had no trouble saying, this is garbage. Who would believe this? But a bunch of it he thought was valid truth. And so, for example, he believed Plato not only had so much valid truth, but that Plato himself was probably influenced by the Old Testament and by Moses. Clement of Alexandria said what the Old Testament was for the Jews to point to Jesus, Plato and others were to the Greeks to point to Jesus. Clement would uh, write going back and forth between the two. I've got some Clement here. By the way, if you sit in the auditorium in the front right as you're facing the stage, so it'd be stage left, they've got this massive arm that I'm, I sit over there because I'm a lawyer. I'm just waiting for it to hit someone in the head so I get a lawsuit against the church. That's a joke. Don't sue the church. Don't, don't sue the Lord. All right. You got this big old arm, and they were warming it up when I was there this morning. I got there a little bit early. So I'm sitting there, and I'm reading Clement of Alexandria. And unknown to me, that arm behind me, Fleming, Pastor David Fleming, goes over to the guy, and I'm not paying attention, man. I'm deep trying to figure out how this heiress verb is working. And uh, Dr. Fleming goes over, Pastor Fleming goes over to the uh, cameraman and says, zoom in on what he's reading. And I don't know that camera's behind me, and I hadn't even seen Fleming over there with the cameraman. Then about 30 seconds later, Fleming says to me, and, and I mean, I've got it in my lap. There's no way he's seeing it. He says, Mark, just knowing you the way I do, I bet you're reading Greek right now. <laughs> I looked up and thought, man, he's good. <laughs> and then he started laughing, just thought it was hilarious because he'd had the camera do it. Uh, which also tells you, be careful what you're reading. 
in church, okay? Let's put the English side up here for a moment. Here's what he's writing about. He's talking about piety towards God. He says, it is only necessary to live according to piety in order to obtain eternal life. Whereas philosophy, as the elders say, is a lengthy deliberation that pursues sophie, wisdom, sophos, with a never-ending love. That's the philos part, all right? But the commandment of the Lord shines afar, giving light to the eyes. That is Psalm 19, verse 8. All right? Receive the Christ. Receive power to see. He's talking about purity here. He's saying you can use philosophy to try and figure out how to live, but it's a long process to get there. Or you can read the Bible and look to Jesus, who's going to be the shortcut to teach you how to live. Okay? But... Or so he says, so receive the Christ, receive power to see, receive thy light, and then thou shalt, thus shalt thou well discern who is God and who is but mortal. There he's quoting Homer. The word who has given us light is to be desired above gold and precious stone. He is sweet above honey and the honeycomb. That's Psalm 19 again. Now he's at verse 10. How can we help desiring him who's made clear the mind that lay buried in darkness and sharpened the light-bearing eyes of the soul? There he's quoting Plato from Timaeus. What Plato said, this was science is that it's through the eyes mainly that you receive the information and the knowledge that informs your being. Hence, he call, uh, Plato calls it the light-bearing eyes of the soul. Your soul receives truth not through a Vulcan mind meld, but through what you see and perceive through the eyes primarily. And in Timaeus, what Plato's writing about is he says, that's why when the gods fashioned the face, the first thing they made were the eyes. So it would inform the rest of the man. So here you've got Clement, and he just assumes that Plato's right, that the eyes are the best source, and he's using the science of his day, the philosophy of his day to say, so we learn from that, look to Jesus. Cast your eyes upon him, and you'll learn. I, you, you go through, and, and he's just, I mean, everything he writes, he just assumes the science of Plato. Now, that gets him into some trouble. And it gets his students into some trouble. Because his students come back, and Plato also taught that the soul pre-exists birth. The soul pre-exists birth. They thought that was science. So they use that with Scripture as well. 
And they would say things like, that helps us understand the Romans passage where Paul says that God declares, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Clearly, that tells us that Jacob and Esau, when they were souls before they were born into the body, Jacob did good things and Esau did bad things. And that's why God chose one over the other. So they would take the science of their day and read it into Scripture or read Scripture in light of what they thought was scientific truth. Sometimes it turned out to be very good. Sometimes it turned out to be ranked science. But that's what they did. Now, let's shift gears. Let's go uh, back to the PowerPoint, please. Contrast that with Tertullian. Tertullian was someone who hated philosophy and philosophers. The interesting part is Tertullian was also born to pagan parents. Tertullian was also educated with philosophy. Tertullian goes to law school and becomes a trial lawyer. Becomes our big first Latin writing scholar. In fact, it's Tertullian who's responsible for calling the New Testament the New Testament. So Tertullian is there, and Tertullian just doesn't give a rip about philosophy or philosophers. He just says, read the Bible. And that ought to be enough. And sometimes it was, and sometimes as a result, he's in error. But let's look at some of what he says here, and you get a flavor for him. So he says... Um, You're more ready to reward them, the, stat, uh, the philosophers, with statutes and stipends than to condemn them to the beast. Because Christians are still being crucified. Quite right, too. Philosophers is what they're called, not Christians. This name of philosopher, it doesn't drive out demons. Who's going to drive out a demon in the name of philosophy? Why not, seeing that Philosophers rank demons below gods. It's the voice of Socrates, if the demon permit. I mean, he just goes on and on and on and says, philosophers stink. They're terrible. Tertullian is the one who asked this question. What does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? The Bible is Jewish. Our faith is Jewish. It's from Jerusalem. What right do you have? And I mean, he wrote against Clement. They, they just like lobbing dirt clods at each other from across the street. He writes against Clement. What has Athens to do with Jerusalem? And the response that the Alexandrian school promoted that was a delightful response. It's from origin. The response was, hey, we're just plundering the Egyptians. Think back about the Old Testament. When God sent the Israelites out of Egypt, before they left, he said, go take a bunch of their treasures, ask them for it, and take it with you. So that's all we did. We left Athens. We just took a bunch of their treasures. So we've embraced those things that are valid and useful science 
and use them in our understanding of God and Scripture. It is Greek thought that sits there and tries to figure out the Trinity. The Hebrews are just, God is one. Jesus is the Lord. God is God. Father is God. Jesus is God. Holy Spirit's God. God is one. And the Greeks are there saying, wait, 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 wait. One plus one plus one does not equal one. We got a problem here. We got to work through this. It's the Greeks who come up with this huge problem. It's Greek thought that comes up with this huge problem of how can Mary have Jesus if God is already part of Jesus in her womb? That would mean that holy, pure God is living in the womb of a fallen woman that's not perfect. And that means God can reside in imperfection. That doesn't work. So there's this massive church fight over it as they try to sort through that thinking. It'd been a whole lot easier if they had our science and understood that that baby is in there, but that baby's not part of the mama. That baby's an independent living being. Contrary to what some lawmakers would say. But it, it, anyway, all right, I digress and I'm running out of time. We have a picnic to go to. I got about a thousand of my best friends coming over for lunch. So let's keep going. So where does this leave us? It leaves us with our fruit for home. I want to give you three things. I want to start with 2 Timothy 1.12. Paul writes, I know whom I have believed, and I'm persuaded he is able to keep what I've committed to him against that day. Paul doesn't say I know what I've believed. The core of our faith is the Lord Jesus Christ, dead, buried, and resurrected on our behalf. And you don't have to have perfect understanding of all these other things to be right with God, to fellowship with God, for God to hear your prayers, for God to honor you, for you to honor God, for you to worship the Lord in truth. You don't have to have all of the details right on on recapitulation and other things of such sort, to know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, to trust Him with who you are, and to be redeemed by the power of His blood. So we got to remember the point. Fruit from number two. Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. He's speaking in threes and that's a powerful parallel punch that's modeled by Shakespeare with Julius Caesar where he says Winnie, witty, wicky I came, I saw, I conquered and Shakespeare saying that Caesar saying that through the words of Shakespeare is, is Caesar saying you know I did three things they're all equal I came, I saw, I conquered. Like, conquering was no harder feat than looking or coming. It's a, it's a really uh, 
pompous, kind of cool, pompous way of saying, yeah, I beat him. Big deal. I mean, it's like me playing racquetball with Lewis. It just, no big deal. Um, I'm just joking. But Jesus is saying the same thing here. I am the way. He is our way of salvation. But equally true and of equal import, he is truth. And we don't have to choose between the Bible and science. We really don't. I'm not saying there aren't challenges. I'm not saying that that there aren't things you have to, to struggle to understand. But I'm 54 going on 55. And I hadn't found any yet that are perplexing me beyond my faith. And it's not because I'm blind to science. I live in scientific worlds. So, yeah, there are things, you know, and, 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 but, but Jesus is the way. He's also the truth. And he's also the life. All three of those. And because of that, I'm going to seek his truth. I don't need it to be saved. But boy, I want to learn more about him. And then finally, this is my flagship verse for science in the Bible. What can be known about God? This is Paul writing to the Romans. And he's talking about pagans here. What can be known about God is plain to the pagans. God showed it to them. God's invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. When we see the creation of the world, when we see the things that are made, we learn about who God is. And this is the illustration I used with the Wheaton class, and I'm sorry I kept you over. Sorry, one more minute and I'll be done. Here's the illustration. I said to them, and you can be the class today, what is two plus two? What was it yesterday? Are you worried tomorrow it might change? Are you thinking, oh, I'd hate to have to relearn the addition tables. What if 2 plus 2 becomes 5 tomorrow? It's not going to. Does God love you today? Did God love you yesterday? Does Will God love you tomorrow? Oh, what if you're really bad? He still will. We can see in nature the 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 divine attributes of God. We can see in the world around us His divine nature, His consistency, His reliability, and His love. Can I pray over you? Lord, thank you so much that we had this morning to talk about this. I pray for those students at Wheaton. I pray for our kids. I pray for everyone in this class that you would bless them, Father. Propel them forward to let science and let let thought and, and truth permeate their being and inform them of you in ways that that, that brings uh, insight beyond uh, what we would have otherwise, Lord, as the God of science, as the God of truth, the, the God who created this nature around us, Lord. We give you praise and glory in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.